A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Lockdown TV by Unheard. Special first because it's the first one in our new studio, replete with Unheard sign that we're very proud of. But even more importantly, special because the guest is very special. You look at why every group is virtue signaling and, and you find out it's kind of cynical, really. This is Ayan Hirsi Ali, who is joining us from the US. Congratulations on your book, which is coming out this week. Um, it's called Prey. And I thought, just before we talk about it, important for our viewers to know a little bit about you, those people who don't already, and your incredible life story. So you were born in Somalia. Um, you spent time in Kenya. You then entered the um, Netherlands as a refugee. And at that point, you then grew up, you rose to become a politician. Um, you were, I believe, a minister at one point and have now moved all the way to the US. Is that roughly the journey, or have I missed out crucial sections? Uh, no, absolutely, that is the journey. Uh, the, the only thing maybe people would contend with would be to say, uh, given the reputation of politicians these days, you don't rise to be a politician, but I probably descended <laughs> into right. becoming a politician. Well, you have now risen, uh, you've now risen again from those depths. Yeah. <laughs> And just to, to uh, as, as important context as well, your name was on a Al Qaeda hit list. You've been critical of the religion of Islam, and your name ended up on one of those hit lists. And you need to travel wherever you go with security. Yeah, and the context of that was when 9/11 happened. Uh, I was working for a think tank in the Netherlands, Social Democratic think tank. I think it's what you call the Labour Party in the in the United Kingdom. And uh, people were arguing back and forth about what caused those 19 men um, to assail the United States. And I took the position that they were driven more by their convictions and inspired by political Islam and not so much by foreign policy, whether it's foreign policy in the United States or foreign policy in Israel. And I think that was you know, unwittingly what sort of threw me into a situation where I became, for some people, infamous and others famous. 
the, the issue that your most recent book is about uh, is possibly the most sensitive of them all. Um, you're a brave person for undertaking it. Um, and what you're investigating is the, the crucial question of whether the surge in immigration that Europe experienced in 2015 and the years after that led to changes and led to any kind of increase in sexual violence against women. Um, the idea being that uh, immigrants from Muslim majority countries in some way were more responsible for that than others. And for understandable reasons, it's an incredibly sensitive topic. Uh, tell us what you found. So first of all, context again, it's sensitive now because the idea of identity politics is now prevailing. Uh, these issues, Islam, immigration, terrorism, all these things have become, if anything, even more controversial. People are too scared to be cancelled. Um, so th there's, that's the background noise. And then when you throw in um, the, you know, the reality, this, this is what I found that immigration uh, has unintended consequences for women in general. So in the past, I published on and spoke about uh, immigrant women, Muslim women, who were subjected to such phenomena as female genital mutilation, uh, child marriage, forced marriage, um, things that seemed to be new and strange to native um, white people's host societies. And I think there was a sense from the center-left and from the center-right established parties that these things were bad and they felt really sorry for uh, the women who were enduring these things. Um, but there was a sense, well, it's their culture, what can we do? And now because of the scale of the immigration from societies where women are not treated uh, equally or were treated differently, um, this is spilling over uh, to the wider society. And so, yes, it is, it's, it's a very controversial, very controversial, very sensitive topic. And anybody who addresses it is smeared as uh, a member of, you know, some kind of extremist group. Right. So that would be you're racist or you're anti-Islam, Islamophobic or those kind of words are quite exactly. easily brandished, aren't they? Exactly. And, and I make it very clear in the book that, you know, anti, the anti-Islam sentiment is very strong, or the anti-Muslim sentiment is actually really strong, and it's getting stronger because these extreme right-wing parties, populist parties, are cropping up all over Europe and getting many voters. But the reason that's happening is because they're the only ones willing to tackle these issues um, and then you also have the Islamist movements. Uh, these are the ones who are luring young men and persuading them to become extremists. And, you know, when you take it to the very extreme, persuading them to become actual terrorists. And then you have the Russian trolls and agencies who are trying to destabilize society. So if you want to empower these extreme fringes, uh, the thing to do is to be silent or, or place a taboo on these controversial issues. And I was motivated to say, well, we the establishment, we people in the center, center left, center right, we should be talking about these issues. And we should um, take this rational approach where, and I'm very optimistic, I think, I think of myself as a classical liberal. And if I look at the history of classical liberalism, I think if you come to the table in good faith, 
um, and listen to everyone's perspective, we would be able to develop measures that could work. Uh, we've done it in the past on so many issues. So that's really the point of the book. One thing I noticed, you mentioned classical liberal. I mean, one of the values of classical liberalism is, is evidence and a, assessment in a kind of rational way. What was that journey of evidence? Where did it take you? I mean, what have you concluded is the truth of this question? Well, before you get to any truth, uh, what you do is you trust the institutions who actually paid to engage in the data gathering. And what you find is that data then is weaponized, it's politicized. And you have people like some of the people I talk to, uh, they embark on the journey of finding these things. And once they do that, then their work is immediately dismissed as far right. Uh, they are told to nix it. In fact, many years ago, um, when I lived in Holland, I was asked to look at the problem in a small town called Amersfoort, why Somali immigrants uh, were not integrating or assimilating properly, why they were causing so many problems. And I turned the report in and I was told, that's it, we're not going to show the report to anyone. And I remember thinking, but if you don't do that, the problem will just continue. And back then, it's, it was minuscule. It was a very, to me, seemingly very small problem that you could fix if you put the resources to it, develop the programs. And now things are getting even bigger and bigger, and there are more and more social scientists who are being confronted with these problems of looking to the problem, gather the data, and then the data is destroyed or hidden, or it's twisted in a way that uh, it's not instrumental to trying to achieve a resolution to the problem, but it, it's twisted. That's why I, when I said uh, descending into politics, I'm not ascending into it. It, it, it sort of, it just, it becomes, it, it disappears into the culture war sphere. Uh, and that is very sad because real people, real human beings are affected and are suffering. Uh, women are suffering because they are bearing, and, and I'm, when I talk about women, I'm talking about women who live in um, low-income neighborhoods, so in one way it's a class issue, but the immigrants themselves are suffering. And so everybody in this, where we are now, it's lose-lose for everyone. I think we need to just be clear, what is the problem? I mean, what is it that they are suffering? You've, you've spent this time doing this research. What is it that you think is going on? What is going on is that we are having a large surge of young men coming from Muslim-majority countries where they're not used to treating women um, as equals. And we are seeing an increase in sexual violence. And that sexual violence varies from very relatively mild, verbal, from the catcalls, lewd and obscene invitations, to touching and groping and harassing, all of it unwanted, to uh, rapes and gang rapes, and in extreme situations, things that lead to homicide. And these incidents that were very, very rare uh, in many of these European countries have now become, in some countries, in some neighborhoods, commonplace to the point where you are going to find neighborhoods in many European countries that have taken these immigrants uh, women free. 
So for instance, you shared with me that you're originally from Sweden. Uh, there are some Swedish neighborhoods where you go and you look around, no women, uh, same, some of the Parisian suburbs, uh, same thing in France. Women are simply coping the way that women in the countries of origin of these men cope, which is, it's just not safe enough for me to be here. So I will move myself out of this space. They withdraw. Now, withdraw, retreat. Um, you have women-free cafes, women-free streets, women-free zones. Uh, they're not making use of the infrastructure. And not all women can do that because not all women have the income or the resources to, to do that. And it's weird because we used to have this and still do have the conversation about integration, assimilating these young men and immigrant women into the society that they have chosen to come to live in. And the characteristic of that society is that it's liberal, that we put a lot of emphasis on equality between men and women, on freedom of movement, on the respect for the dignity of the bodies of individuals. And what we are seeing now is that we're adapting in the wrong way. And I've seen, if you have been looking at these women's issues in, uh, the, in Muslim majority countries, and we've seen something like that happen uh, you know, the 50s and 60s in places like Iran, Afghanistan, Somalia, women had relatively more freedoms than they do now. So we, we've seen an evolution where, and that's why I use the word erosion, women's rights are eroded um, because of misogynistic prevailing forces that use religion as an argument to take away those rights. Uh, we're seeing similar movements, similar things happening in Europe. And people are talking about these things in their dining rooms. Um, they're talking about it in their chat rooms on social media. Um, but it's pretty much become too sensitive to discuss in uh, you know, polite society. And I think that that's wrong. Do you actually think then, you made the comparison of uh, Afghanistan or Iran in the sort of 70s and earlier decades where they moved from being quite uh, sort of westernized or liberal and then changed so that more women were covered and women were expected to be more kind of modest. Are you actually saying that you think a similar thing is happening in European countries? In Europe it was happening and it was happening almost exclusively to immigrant Muslim women and we ignored that. And then it started to happen to other women, non-immigrant women, you know, native women, and we ignore that. And now it's sort of burst into the, and the incidents that illustrate this are the concerts, uh, you know, the New Year's Eve event in Cologne in Germany, 2016-2017 event. So you see things like this. And then when you look into that, you can think that's a one-off. Uh, it happened this year, but it's not going to happen next year because the authorities are going to do something about it. And what I found to my amazement was, it isn't that it's, it, the concert is going to take place next year because the authorities, no, 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 the concert gets canceled. The rule of law is not going to be enforced. The concert is just going to be canceled. And, and what, so why, why would that happen then? Well, these are the big events that make it to the news, but what you don't see are the small day-to-day -day events that don't make it to the news. 
And that is when you start. And what we did, my research, and I was just walk through some of these neighborhoods. Um, some of these neighborhoods I can't go to because of my situation with and my relationship with radical Islam. But had my researchers just, you know, as a female, just go and walk, you know, going to a store, going to a cafe, walk the street, uh, tell me what you see. And what they're recording is that they're just these women free zones. They're just not women. And they've talked to women, local women, who feel the same way, who feel like they've just been removed from these spaces. And I think you've read the book. Um, they they report on, say, what the men who are doing the removing say, but also what the authorities say. And you, you ask me why, and well, the answer to the why is there is a denial, um, there is a sense of powerlessness, and then for the men who are behaving, who feel that women should not be there, there is a conviction that they shouldn't be there. It's their space. And as these things, it's a clash of, it's a clash of values. And right now, it seems to me that the men who believe that women should stay at home and out of their way, uh, they seem to be winning. So you mentioned in the book uh, the Me Too movement. And it is certainly remarkable that in the years since 2015, uh, we've seen huge advances and it's been hugely focused on the, the question of violence against women and intimidation and, and sexual intimidation. Um, and yet the same focus has not been put on these areas and this particular form of violence against women. Um, what's the source of that disconnect, do you think? The, the one thing that comes to mind is class. Um, and again, I will say to you, I think uh, the Me Too movement started out with something very strong, very powerful, very good that I approve of as a woman, which is the proposition that women should be safe in the workplace. And I still support that. And I hoped very much that that would become universal, but it stopped with what I would say is the preoccupation of middle-class women. Once we had to then address um, misconduct by immigrant men, men of color in large numbers, it sort of came to a screeching halt. And women of lower income, and in this case, for instance, the victims of the grooming gangs in the United Kingdom, or the women that I'm discussing who are bearing the burden of the unintended consequences of immigration in working class neighborhoods, uh, Me Too hasn't said a word about them, done anything for them, and that's unfortunate. So do you think this is still a problem that is essentially restricted to certain neighborhoods in the outskirts of Paris or Malmö in Sweden or places in the Netherlands, uh, or do you think it has somehow become broader across Europe? In some areas, it has become broader in the sense that as the scale of um, the number of perpetrators, as that grows, and along with that comes a buzz. And this is what I'm about to say is going to be really sensitive. If these groups of young men think 
that they can get away with that misconduct. They spread the territory in which they're going to misbehave. So it starts to affect ever more women. Now, we're not talking about the workspace here. We're talking about the public space. So just streets, train stations, concerts, um, any, any space that we regard as the public space, that's now where this misconduct is taking place. So depending on, again, it's a scale issue, depending on that and depending on um, the effectiveness of the deterrence. And in the book, I make the point that the deterrence methods in Europe are not effective. We're going to see a spread of this problem. Do you have a, a better deterrent? I mean, if we are brave enough to say, OK, we have a problem here, certain immigrant communities are, are not treating women well, and it's become a bigger problem because there's been a surge of those uh, types of immigrants in the past few years. What do we do about it? So we do three things. First of all, we name the problem. And then we have the second thing is the carrot. We, we develop these programs, and I've seen some countries do that, for instance, Denmark and Austria, where they develop programs where they say, we are not taking it for granted that these men know how to behave themselves because they come from societies where they're not used to treating women equally. So it's not fair to them to expect that. And that is the carrot. That is then to, to offer them these programs, to say, this is how we, we treat women. This is how, we this is how you're expected to behave there. I think that's fair. And then there's the stick. Once you've gone through such programs, now you know how not to behave, but you carry on doing this way, then I think you should be, you should be deported. And the only um, deterrence I've spoken to immigrant men themselves, um, and whose, whose testimonies I record in the book, they're saying it is really the only deterrence that works. Uh, it works better the threat, than prison. The threat of deportation or, or actual deportation. Or actual deportation, because to come to Europe, it is just the hardest of journeys to come from South Asia or the Middle East or Africa, to cross the Mediterranean, to pay people smugglers, to have your family raise so much money. So by the time you get there and you live there, you've, you have spent so much. So the threats of being deported, uh, and, and again, when you have that buzz, when you have that conversation going around, I think that that is perhaps the most effective deterrent. But then again, you look at the deportation mechanisms in these various countries that are in place, and they're all ineffective. People are removed, say, from an asylum seeker's compound, but they're not actually removed from the country. Or they're yeah, it's removed. It's a tiny, tiny percentage of people are ever deported. Yeah. And, and you know, you rape a woman in the Netherlands, and they remove you from a compound, and then you come to England and you do it again, and and then you go and go to another country and you do it again and and again. That's then the conversation that takes place, which is you're once you're in Europe. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're fine. And so I think you, you do need for these countries to work together and to come up with a system that has the carrot element of absolutely, you know, developing programs that impart the necessary values um, and make sure that these young men attend and, and absorb these values. And then those who fail, they have to live with the consequences. And that is them going back to where they came from. Are you of the view, I mean, that's a, that's a potential solution, um, a, a way to mitigate, I suppose, uh, the problem. Um, are you of the view that Europe welcoming that volume of immigrants from those countries in such a uh, small space of time was a mistake? It was thoughtless. Uh, it's not so much a mistake. So when I spoke to uh, some of the people who don't want to have their names, as you saw in the book, uh, senior officials, senior journalists in Germany, and this is the 2015 surge, um, they, they said Angela Merkel, uh, I said, what was the thought behind that? You know, was there a plan? And um, they all agreed. They said it was absolutely thoughtless. It, it was a political moment. She saw that Palestinian child cry. The cameras were on her. And she said, OK, open the doors. And there's a lot of anger towards her for doing that. And that was a moment in time. Given where we were in 2015, I mean, it's very, I think, important to be clear-eyed about this now. You know, that was such an amazing moment. And so many people across Europe were inspired by Angela Merkel's big uh, invitation. Um, you know, wir schaffen das, we'll manage this, was her message to Germans. And Sweden obviously took a, a, a very large number of refugees from that conflict. Are we now to conclude that that was the wrong call? I think it is fantastic to be compassionate. Um, but from a judgmental, you know, from a perspective of um, as a leader, you're, you're elected as a leader, you're above us all because we think you, um, you have the skill to judge situations that the rest of us 
can't judge so well. So in that sense, I would say, no, she didn't, she didn't do the right thing. She displayed compassion, which we all have, which is good. But someone makes those trade-offs for us. So that was a mistake. And why was it a mistake? Because many of these European countries were already struggling with the integration issue. I would say right now, as any European leader, you would prioritize the integration issue first. Get that right before you bring more people in. And if you are going to bring more people in, then be selective about it. But if you are going to be selective about it, then you have to do something about borders, expatriation. You're going to do something about push and pull factors. It becomes a bit more complex. And that's what I miss. What we are seeing now is the simplicity of when we are confronted with a crisis, like the one in Syria or the next conflict, we are going to have a camera moment of showing, you know, virtue signaling about compassion and then creating even more problems for the immigrants and for the natives. And that's not, that's just going to really lead to um, a great deal of hostility for immigrants, uh, volatility, political volatility, problems with social cohesion, problems for women. Um, so what we really need is to have a rational conversation about immigration, Islam, integration, that whole deal, but in a more, you know, we just keep pushing this, this, this issue farther and farther down. Does that mean then, in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, I mean, the UK's approach, at the time it was Prime Minister David Cameron, and he received a huge amount of criticism as being, it was a sort of moral outrage, actually, that he, I think, only offered to take 10,000 refugees over a five-year period. And it was considered a laughably small amount when you had countries like Sweden offering hundreds of thousands of places in a much, much smaller population. And he was the kind of, the, he was the moral bad guy at that point. And he, his argument was, okay, the UK is investing in refugee camps. His argument was that refugees from Syria should remain in that area and they should be looked after as well as possible there with the idea that they would return after the conflict ended. Do we now say one of those rare things that actually Cameron got that right? Yeah, Cameron was the most responsive, I thought, of the European leaders at the time, where he was trying to say we have to be compassionate and open and help others out. But at the time, he was also responsive to, uh, in doing what he was elected to do, which is be um, the leader of the British people. So in trying to balance of all of these things, if we had built on where he had started, uh, then, you know, we, we could have avoided that 2015 issue. Uh, but his hands were tied on the one hand nationally and on the other hand, um, all these, uh, the, the EU stuff. So, and I'm not saying um, that, you know, I'm not judging Angela Merkel uh, uh, as, as a bad woman or as a bad person or as a thoughtless person. I'm just saying it is what, what, what the different European leaders failed to do is to work together. And ultimately, then you get such phenomena as Brexit uh, and nation states saying we can't work together. If we can't work together, then we're going to work alone. You can make a very persuasive case that the wave of immigration in 2015 directly led to the Brexit result the following year. There were posters of uh, uh, migrants arriving that frightened people. 
people were very agitated and worried about it, and it made Brexit certainly more likely. It was a major factor in persuading the electorate. Being a member of the EU is hopeless. It's better to go alone. Uh, and and that, that issue, that immigration issue and the unintended consequences, and this, this idea that you know, we're just being overwhelmed with what is happening with the rest of the world and our leaders don't know what to do about it and everything is being outsourced to Brussels. That sentiment is very strong in all the EU countries, all, all the EU member states. So it's not just a British thing. And, and of course, on, on her own terms, on Angela Merkel's own terms, you know, the, the sort of international liberal project was hugely damaged by that uh, long term. I mean, there, there has been a huge growth in populist parties, as you detail in the book. Brexit happened, it sort of ricocheted around the world. And, um, you know, even uh, according to her own terms, it was not successful. It wasn't successful. And then fast forward now with COVID and the vaccines, uh, it looks like Britain is doing better than the EU. So it's going to obviously empower all the people who said it was better to go do things on your own. Um, but there's more to that. Um, there's also a sense that when it comes to immigration, we were told, well, we can't do this because it's going to violate our civil rights. Um, we are liberal societies, and as liberal societies, there are things we can't do, you know, deportations, closing borders, this, that, and the other. And now with COVID, what are we doing? We're closing borders. We're constraining our civil liberties. We're having lockdown after lockdown. And so I think even after COVID uh, is past us, if it's ever past us, I think voters are going to think, wait a second, you subjected us to all of these things, so you can't make those arguments afterwards. Well, it's definitely been astonishing that those very same groups who for years have been talking about the importance of open borders and internationalism and you know, remaining connected to the rest of the world are so uh, eager now to close those borders. Uh, yeah. So, Locked as you, you say. You can't go to the beach and you can't go to the parks. Um, but yeah, and I think that that's exactly the conversation that voters are having now and uh, the hypocrisy, the contradictions, uh, those who are affected and those who are not affected. And, and I think we're in for interesting times. We thought we were in interesting times in 2016 and with the election of Trump. But I think we really are now moving into even more interesting times. The frightening thing, I, I think, and this is, I guess, a little bit broader than the topic of your book, but the question of how do you defend a liberal society? You know, if, if your founding principle is openness and freedom, uh, and sort of generosity to minorities and to difference. Um, how can you defend that? Um, and I think that's a sort of philosophical problem that liberal leaders have struggled with for the past few decades, really. Well, I think the best way to defend it is to have open conversations about it, and open debate. And again, to go back to the issue of context, we are having all these major problems in at a time when we're saying we're going to demonize people with different perspectives. And we're talking about COVID. If you don't believe in lockdowns, you're in bed with the right-wing extremists. If you have a different perspective on immigration, you are an extremist right-wing. If you think that balancing 
you know, women's rights with uh, transgender rights, uh, there's something horribly wrong with you. Uh, this, this context where there's censorship and taboos and just trying to shut down free inquiry and this hostility to science, um, I think that's what, what I worry about the most right now. I don't know what you think of this, but one way of understanding it is that, you know, if we take this, that period of time, the last six or seven years, that group and that way of thinking has gone from being dominant, sort of unquestionably dominant, to being challenged. It's been confronted with its own failures and shortcomings. It's had evidently very successful alternative political ideas all over the world. And so now it feels defensive and insecure. I agree with that, with, I think, the emphasis on the insecurity. And I think the insecurity is why people don't want uh, to be confronted with what might be a shortcoming in their perspective or their ideas or their solutions. Now, that is, when, when we talk about insecurities, that's sort of a psychological mindset. Uh, but alongside that are also special interests. And the special interests exploit that. Uh, so the extreme right populist um, parties exploit that psychological stance. The radical Islamists do the exact same thing. You know, the uh, some companies do that. Uh, where we had here the killing of George Floyd and the aftermath of that. And there were so many capitalist companies that were pretending to be socialists and marching around calling with Black Lives Matter. And, and that is just such a glaring special interest exploitation of the situation. And so you have all this fragmentation of people who are using the situation to shut down debate and free inquiry because they have something to hide or they have something to gain from it. And also, I guess, they, they want to be cloaked in the kind of moral certainty that it offers. Uh, and that's why, you know, you talked about Black Lives Matter. It is com comparable to the mood in 2015 around refugees because there was it was such a sort of unquestionable moral good. And, and the, the motivation behind it was, you know, who would disagree with the idea of welcoming a, a child refugee from a war-torn country or the concept of Black Lives Matter. But it then becomes a sort of hegemony that that possibly can be dangerous if people don't dare to disagree with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so in the case of Black Lives Matter, they're pushing an ideology, um, exploiting um, the situation of large numbers of black people who find themselves in, in equal position. And so if really Black Lives Matter wanted to help black people in America, they would fight for education, like charter schools, but the kind of school systems that actually lifts people out of poverty, that's not what they're fighting for. They would fight for uh, the nuclear family. They're actually stating that they're against the nuclear family. What they're saying is that they want a redistribution of resources where you take away from the rich and give to the poor, but then that they're in charge of it and all sorts of other crazy stuff uh, that in no way addresses the situation of poor black people or um, they talk about police violence against black people, but they don't talk about black and black violence. And uh, a lot of black mothers in black neighborhoods, for instance, in Chicago, New York, they're saying, we, we don't want to give up the police. We don't want to defund the police. 
it's the police that are fighting for us. So you dig deep into what some of these organizations are saying, and it's really they have very selfish, very narrow interests that you can you can easily identify. To go back to the issue of immigration and integration, what you see also is that uh, there's a lot of incompetence that some of these governments have either not thought about these issues or have failed uh, to, uh, to, to, to organize some kind of consensus on what to do about it. In other words, pure incompetence and how do you camouflage incompetence? You just take the moral high ground and you say, you talk about compassion instead of competence. So it just, you know, you look at why every group is virtue signaling and, and you find out that's kind of cynical, really. For me, when hearing you talk and also reading your book, it just highlights this, this point that what appears virtuous at a given moment isn't necessarily so. And, and it takes someone like you, it takes someone brave and credible to stand up and say, actually, this sounds good, but what is it going to lead to in five years, in 10 years' time? I mean, what, what's your sort of message to people who have doubts about these big fashionable movements that become so powerful? You know, how should they do their best to contribute? I think you first of all, you dig down into uh, what the person or group or company or political party that is virtue signaling is saying, and what is it uh, that their true interest is. And there you'll find a number of contradictions. And then I think you have to confront them with what is what do you want really when you talk to Ben and Jerry's? Do you want to make a profit or do you want to stand with Black Lives Matter? Uh, they are making a profit. <laughs> and what have they done for blacks and black people? And if you, once you start asking these questions, once you know you write a book like this and you say, so you've been virtue signaling about women's rights all this time to feminists, you you want to shatter the glass ceiling and sit in board members and become CEOs and so on. But here's what's happening to women on the streets, victims of grooming gangs, victims of uh, this type of, uh, what have you said and done about that? And then you get the glaring absence of morality and virtue. Uh, and I don't know where that leaves them. Actually, the whole West is suffering a bit of a moment of kind of philosophical crisis where it feels uh, not proud of its history, not certain what it values. Um, and because of that, it's kind of chasing false gods, false ideals in an effort to try and find something good to, to do. I mean, do you, you've come from, uh, you know, we talked about all those countries you've lived in on this incredible journey. You've come to the West from originally Somalia, a very, very different country. How is, your, how is the West doing? I think the narrative now prevails, as my late friend Roger Scruton, and late friend Christopher Hitchens, and um, others, and my husband Neil Ferguson, and many others uh, have pointed out that the narrative is now prevailing, that everything that the Western um, civilization has brought forth is now seen in a negative light. That narrative is prevailing, or if it's not, the people who are opposed to that uh, feel embarrassed about it and are silenced by it. 
I think things are changing because of platforms like yours. And there are more and more coming up. Uh, I'm optimistic because millennials and the younger generations are saying, but wait a second, maybe it wasn't all that bad. Um, but right now, the loudest voices are all about how Western civilization is just about slavery and colonization and oppression and subjugation and misogyny and homophobia, Islamophobia. I mean, that's stuff that's being taught in universities, in even elementary schools and high schools, teacher training colleges. Uh, that's the stuff that's being, um, being promoted. Um, and of course, I think that that's just one side of the story. But you've also, you're also in a position to judge. I mean, this is the kind of ultimate question, yeah. which is so taboo. Do you feel like your host culture was better for you Much, than absolutely. the place you started? Absolutely. I, I made it very clear in my book, Infidel, where I uh, describe my life story in all the countries I'd lived. So I was born in Somalia. I was in Saudi Arabia. I was in Ethiopia. I was in Kenya before I came to the Netherlands, and I was astonished by the way people lived in the Netherlands. And when I went on to other European countries for short periods of times, and then permanently moved to uh, the United States of America, I mean, it is in your face better <laughs> to be in these Western countries as a woman, as black, as gay, as anything you want to be, really compared to any of the other societies in the rest of the world. So it's, I think it's wrong and it's counterproductive to tell only the negative side of history. And there's been a lot, a lot of, uh, and not just a lot, I think it's, I wouldn't even do it. Western civilization is superior to all other um, civilizations uh, in history and today. And we should stop this nonsense of just, um, focusing on what went wrong and start talking about what went right. It is Western civilization that actually put an end to slave trade, regretted its empires and colonialism, emancipated women, had all of these debates and discussions about lifting up um, homosexuals. And we are having these discussions about transgender when people in other societies haven't even had the conversation of acknowledging them. So there's a lot that we can be proud of as Western civilization without negating the bad stuff that we did. Uh, so you can do both. Well, that's a, it's a big statement. And hopefully, if people listen to you, um, some confidence might be restored. And maybe out of that confidence, some of that liberal spirit might return. So here's hoping. Yeah, here's hoping. Thank you so much for giving me this time. Thank you so much. <laughs> That was Ayan Hirsi Ali joining us from the US, um, telling us a little bit about her new book, Prey, which is out this week. I should say her new podcast, the Ayan Hirsi Ali podcast, is also launching this week, so a big week for her. Thank you to her for her time. Thanks also for joining. Don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.